those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> Hello, everybody. It's Maureen and Zavi. And today we are going to be talking about eco grief or anxiety as it relates to climate change. And we're going to split up this episode into three parts. The first is going to be talking about our experience with eco grief, um, so how anxiety related to climate change influences our lives and our thought processes on a daily basis. And then we're going to transition into talking about and maybe speculating on the psychological impacts of eco-grief, eco-anxiety on a societal level and what it might be doing to our collective consciousness. And finally, we are going to leave off with uh, some solutions or at least like more hopeful and constructive ways that we can perhaps think about climate change and certain things that we've read and, and people who have inspired us uh, to, yeah, ease our eco-grief. I just learned the word eco-grief recently, so I'm that's why I'm using it all the time. I think it's a very cool term and I felt like I identified a lot with it as I read about it. So I want to introduce our guest because I'm super excited to have Zavi on the podcast, besides being an exceptional exceptional woman in all these ways that I'm about to read out. She's also one of my very best friends and has helped me tremendously talk through these subjects and was a big influence when I first started my channel, A Privileged Vegan, just helping me think about veganism and all these uh, more inter pro-intersectional ways and suggesting authors and other activists that really that really made me mature in my in my thought process about veganism. So yeah, anyway, I could talk about this all day, but thank you, Zavi. You've been an amazing friend and teacher to me. Oh, I love you. <laughs> and okay, so here's her little profesh bio. So Zavi King Ingalls is a poet, writer, activist, and artist living in the Chicago Great Lake Plain bioregion. Zavi seeks to inspire others to heal themselves and the world around them through storytelling, collaborative world building, and creative expression. Her institutional credentials include a BA in English and Urban Studies from Pitzer College, an MA in Social Sciences from the University of Chicago, and a Fulbright Scholarship. Welcome to the show, Zavi, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And also, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, what, what you write about and your background as a Korean-American woman? Yeah, definitely. Well, let's see. So I feel like I should start with a more personal introduction than <laughs> the one that I sent over to you. But um, I am a Korean American woman who was born in the United States. And I spent a lot of time in the US and also in Korea. Um, I identify strongly as a writer and an activist. For me, um, Thinking critically about the world and how to better it has been just at the forefront of my brain for a really long time. And I feel like that expresses itself a lot in my writing, which includes 
um, writing essays about different topics like gun violence, for example. Um, and then also I write a lot of poetry and I'm just generally really interested in how creative writing can be used to create more and better futures for all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll link uh, a lot of Zavi's writing in the show notes to this episode. So make sure that you check check them out. And also, Zavi, do you want to tell us a little bit about the project that you're working or the your website, which, ha- which has just recently been released? I don't want to put you on the spot too much. <laughs> if you want, you can just drop like the, the URL. And yeah, the URL is my name three times, Zavi, Zavi, Zavi.com. Um, and it's a place where I keep all of my writing and it's also kind of this ongoing writing slash documenting my own healing journey project. Um, I've become really interested in this idea of um, collective healing in the past couple of years and for me I and so a lot of that has come through my interest in food and food justice and especially how that relates to um, my culture and growing up um, eating Korean American eating Korean dishes while also growing up in the United States. Um, yeah, so <laughs> so the so the blog features a lot will feature a lot of recipes and things like that, but also more generally my musings about how food and sensory experiences um, work to facilitate daily and vital healing for all of us. Mm, That sounds so good. I am very excited for all of that content. What up, fam? It is Mexi just jumping in post-production to shout out the new patrons. So thank you so much to George Jacobs, Oliver Davies, Sean Williams, Laura Jula, John Mertz, and Ryan Kelsey. We really appreciate your support. Our content is always free, so we rely on the generous, generous donations of our listeners and comrades. If you have just $1 per month, you can support the continuation of these podcasts. It really goes a long way, and we appreciate it from the bottom of our hearts. If you don't have the means to contribute monetarily, you can share our podcast with friends and family to help increase our reach, or give us a review and rating on iTunes, which also helps increase our reach. So thanks so much and back to the show. So do you feel ready to to dig into some of these topics? Yeah. (laughs) So full disclosure, we've been talking about this all day, slash like for years, really. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's so funny to talk about eco-anxiety because like we were saying before this, it's just, it's like one way of describing just your life and how and just the present reality that we're living in. And I think that it feels really great to be in community with other people who are thinking along the same lines and at least kind of looking directly at this reality because the mainstream headlines that we're getting are still very much encouraging us to, to just forget about it all and to pretend that, pretend that this horror isn't currently unfolding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like my awareness of climate change has altered pretty much every aspect of my psyche in ways that are pretty invisible to me now. They've just, they're such an integrated part of my thought process as they relate, as it relates to everything. You know, it's like, yeah, like I look at a trash can in the street full of 
one use, like one use plastic, you know, yeah. and I just get this pang where I'm just like, wow, this wasn't even here an hour ago. <laughs> and in two hours, there's going to be double this amount. <laughs> yeah. And like, what the fuck do we do? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, even just earlier at the coffee shop, we had the most ridiculous yeah. experience, like such, just such a great manifestation of all of the different all of the different forces that are affecting our psyche about this right now. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, we were, we should tell the listeners a little bit about this experience. <laughs> yeah. Um, we were at the, the Pain Quotidien. So already find we wanted iced coffee with plant milk, which is a very rare commodity in France. It's like, they're always very confused about it. They're like, do you want espresso? And just like, we throw in a bunch of ice cubes in it or like, I don't know. It's, it hasn't really like grabbed on here yet. Um, and so anyway, Zavi ordered a latte and we specified with soy milk and, you know, it was a big part of why we went to that cafe in the first place. Um, and the, the latte came And, you know, Zavi was sipping on it, and about five minutes into it, she's like, you know, this, like, kind of tastes like dairy milk. Like, I don't know if it's actually soy milk. So I'm like, really? So I, I take a sip, and I'm like, hmm, yeah, this does, like, taste suspiciously. It has that, like, milky, gross aftertaste <laughs> yeah, you know, that dairy has. So we asked the waitress, and we're like, this is soy milk, right? And she's like, oh, no, 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 it's not soy milk. It's regular milk. And so we're like, oh, damn it. Well, um, and she's like, okay, I'll be right back. And and I'm like, okay, well, we're going to send it back. But we were already like halfway done with the latte. Yeah. I mean, and so Zavi's like, I, I don't know if I want to send it back though. Like it's just going to create more waste. And I was like, right, but like you're not really enjoying this latte. And we like came here specifically for that and we're paying way too much money for this latte. So we're going to send it back. And Zavi also – I'm totally telling the story for you. <laughs> no, but like – Also, at this point, we were having, you know, Zavi was having way down with the latte. So she's like, I don't know if I want to drink a full latte again. And so as a apology for her mistake, this waitress brings out not one new latte, two new lattes. It was like a liter of liquid. And um, so at this point, I'm like, oh, like it was very nice of her, but we didn't really want that much latte anymore. So we only drank like a few Rosavi like only drank a few sips which admittedly were better right because of the oh, soy yeah. milk definitely yeah but I f I feel like yeah the whole time we were just we were just debating back and forth um, well yeah and then and then since we only finished a tiny fraction of it I was like well I kind of want to take this back because then we're going to be wasting all this soy milk <laughs> and Zavi looks at me and she's like So do you just want to kill a tree to take the latte home or something like that? Like, should we go a tree? And I was like, I don't know. Should I get a disposable cup to not waste this latte? Should I just like, should we just throw out all of this soy milk? Yeah. Ended up going with the disposable cup. Not not necessarily because I thought the carbon footprint was lower, but admittedly, I'll be happy to have it tomorrow morning. Right. Um, And I think our ultimate conclusion was that um, in the long run, this one decision isn't going to make or break our future. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, it's funny because we're, we are also in our present situation because of the billions and billions of decisions like that that have led to this moment. Right. And you were saying something interesting about like how it shows how we've internalized capitalism. Oh, yeah. And also, yeah, I think, yeah, just the whole thing was really hilarious because we weren't, I mean, we were we were like hyper focused on on like 
how much waste we were creating, essentially. Like, it wasn't about the drink. It wasn't about the experience. It was really about, like, um, the guilt that we were feeling about the about the choices that we were making. Mm-hmm. Um, and it felt like, as, like, as time went on, we were getting sort of, like, we were sinking into, like, a deeper and deeper, like, sort of, like, guilt quagmire about all these things. But at the same time, that just goes to show how we've internalized these really capitalist narratives about um, about our, about our consumption habits. And one, having all this anxiety about the climate as it relates to a single cup of coffee shows how individualistic I think we've become or how, how individualistic we've been socialized to be rather, um, where on the one hand you feel like you're, you are making, you have the purchasing power to be able to like make this decision, but at the same time you feel super guilty, Mm -hmm. um, about participating in this. And then even more. And then on the other hand, because we all exist within the system of capitalism, it's really hard to extricate ourselves from that. And so I feel like we're constantly navigating the world within this really murky complex of like guilt and the desire to do right and the feeling of impotence and not like being able to change anything about it and all of that kind of muddles our thinking and manifests as this as this ego anxiety where we're just like looking at trash cans and having panic attacks you know yeah yeah it's like I feel guilty if I obsess over these things but I feel guilty if I don't also because I'm like is it complacent that I just bought a coffee and a plastic cup that I'm gonna throw away you know it's like no matter what I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and and another another anecdote that uh, just happened to to me was that I a couple of days ago received this forwarded voice note on WhatsApp, which apparently went viral. I, I didn't I didn't know this at the time, but it was this friend who forwarded me this voice note. Um this voice note was from this nurse and she was saying in this very like familiar familial tone, hey girls, I'm sending you this voice note because like I, I, you know, I'm at the hospital right now. Um, and you know, she works as a nurse and she's saying she, um, they just saw this afternoon, three patients come in with titanium poisoning. Um, and it's from the tap water because a nuclear plant's waste is leaking in the Parisian tap water. Um, and, how like more and more, like presumably more and more people are going to start coming, like trickling in these next few days, but how the government is not issuing an official warning yet because of like the chaos that it will, um, that will ensue, but that she really advised, she's like, you know, please girls, like do not, do not drink the top water. Um, it's super dangerous and we don't know where this is going. And so obviously I received this. I'm mortified. I, forward it to like 15 people and you know I so I started getting all these calls like oh where did you get this voice note from and I'm like I got it from a friend who got it from a friend who got it from a friend and you know I was talking to my mom 10 minutes later and she's like Maureen wow this is like so scary also I do a few google searches there's other people talking about this and she's like oh this sounds this sounds so scary like go out to the store right now and buy a bunch of plastic water bottle like gallons of water before they run out like go like right now and it was this like alarmist apocalyptic hyper individualist reaction where I could just see it so easily like ballooning it ballooning into this thing where I go to the supermarket and it's just a full-out war with like hundreds of consumers trying to get water bottles and so Nestle's all happy because they're water bottles now they can sell it for 15 euros for a tiny water bottle and I just saw this horror film like unfurling in front of me and 
my reaction was like, I need to drink this tap water. <laughs> like, I'm not going to go mm-hmm. down that rabbit hole. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've sort of accepted that what we're doing with the earth is going to kill me one way or another. Like, and so, you know, if drinking this tap water is going to kill, like, I, I was just like, I'm not going to buy plastic water bottles for the rest of my life. And if these are the issues we're having right now, like, just imagine in five years and in 10 years, like, this is just going to be routine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that coupled with the fact that the temperatures have been astronomically high in Paris. So that's like really hyping up my ego anxiety, too, because mm-hmm. I'm like, this place is going to be completely unlivable in 10 years. Yeah. So yeah, I've been in kind of a funk about it. But yeah, I mean, yeah, like we were saying, it's a it's it's a term that's it's just like one small term, but it applies in so many different areas of our lives, and um, and I think that like the people who don't think about it consciously are just repressing it, honestly. Yeah, you know? um, yeah, I think that the water the water example is a really good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and also. And also, I think it's interesting that your reaction to what your mom said was to say, like, well, fuck that. I'm going to I'm going to just drink the tap water. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that also says something about maybe a new approach that we can talk about later and the solutions. But basically um, kind of accepting the present situation that we're in now instead of constantly going back, like running off into this really fear based, like everyone mm-hmm. out for themselves scenario. Um and yeah, right. I'm excited to talk about with that. Yeah. Oh, and I forgot to tell the listeners that it was revealed a few days later that that voice note had gone viral and was quote unquote fake news, which like I'm oh, also so kind of skeptical of. I'm yeah, like, I don't even know. Yeah. You know? <laughs> also, I'm just like, is this woman a monster just making up this? Yeah. This lie. Right. I don't know. Anyway, guys, I'm draining the tap water, so I will report yeah. back. Fake <laughs> news is a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you have ways that it, it it's manifesting for you or mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. – Yeah, let me think about this. Um, yeah, I feel like – well, what I kind of wanted to mention was that um, I feel like I – grew up with a, with like a really, really huge sense of foreboding about the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and sorry, what does foreboding mean? Oh, sorry. <laughs> like a huge sense of just like doom and gloom, like okay. just being super scared, just like the sense that something terrible is going to happen. Um, and has that prepared you in some way? Does that oh, yeah. You? So, yeah. So I guess what I, so what I want to say about it is that I think that I was I think growing up my parents talked to me a lot about climate change and they always presented it as this really awful problem that is kind of like on the horizon but you know we have solar energy we have we have all kinds of great alternatives and it's going to be okay and that was kind of the narrative that I grew up with and growing up, I could see just clearly that it was not going to be okay. Like there was like it, the weather was getting warmer with every year that I got older and I could just feel that really, really, um, yeah, I just felt that really deep in my bones. Um, and I don't think that, I don't think that it prepared me. I think in many ways it's like a form, it's a form of trauma that I've had to do a lot of healing around because, um, for example, I, I never really had that many fantasies about having children because 
I always thought in my head, like, well, maybe I'll have children if something major <laughs> changes politically or with the world in some way, um, which is not a way that I think humans or animals conceive of their reproduction. <laughs> yeah. You know? um, yeah. And I'm trying to think of other examples. I, I, I think that in the U.S. in particular, there's just always been this really kind of unfounded sense of optimism that someone else is going to take care of it. Um, and yeah, I think I think that maybe in one way that it's been helpful for me is that it is that I learned to distrust mainstream forms of authority, like really, really early on. And I think that I actively sought and have always sought to build different different communities of people who are like you actively talking about and thinking about and accepting these things. Mm. Has, how is your, has your thinking about having children changed now you think? Hmm. Um, I mean, now I really don't think I should have children, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Um, I think, it's funny. It's it's almost like the coffee example where we decided in the very end that it doesn't like this one drop doesn't really matter. So how however you feel about the experience, if it's going to be better for you to drink this coffee ultimately, then that's the right decision to make. And I and I think I kind of have that attitude about children too, or at least I don't judge other people for choosing to have mm. children. Um, I don't think that it's fair to accept in, to expect individuals to like have some kind of moral imperative to not reproduce, um, especially when that's then like unfairly, un, you know, like people of color and major in majority in the majority world are like definitely blamed way more for overpopulation and there's just it's just that argument is coded with all kinds of really misogynistic and racist mm-hmm. language um mm-hmm. or thinking so that's yeah. one way in which I've like moved away from that idea of judgment um but just in the sense of yeah thinking about my future I don't think that yeah I think I don't think that I've really conceptualized like the future that I would want for myself because I've always thought about my life as happening within this narrative of sort of like apocalypse or destruction or, you know, the, yeah, the crumbling of the modern, (laughs) the modern age. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I really liked that last thing you said about, yeah, I think about what would life be like if this was just not a question and what if, you know, what was it like for my parents, for example, who at my age really were under the illusion, had never heard the words climate change uttered and were really under the illusion that everything was possible and that eternal growth was just going to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like what, how, I can't even, I can't even think about how that would alter my yeah. life decisions now. Yeah. Um, I think also, sorry, what you said just really reminded me of how um, my dad used to, he used to reassure me by saying, you know, we've always like every generation grows up with like some idea of like, a, of like a terrible thing happening or apocalypse. You know, he, he talked about like the bomb and the cold war and how growing up he and he and other students would learn to go underneath the desk if like for bomb drills and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow, somehow that was meant to reassure me that like, <laughs> that like every generation thinks the world is ending, but, but the world, ha- yeah, but the world <laughs> hasn't ended yet. Um, 
And it's really not reassuring, especially when you look at just like the history and current events and you see that you see that people's homes are destroyed, their lives are destroyed on a daily basis. You know, many, many people's worlds. Like, oh, phew. Yeah, it wasn't me today. Um, many people's worlds and daily and often as a direct result of like these very same forces that we're talking about today. Um and I think that it is important to acknowledge that while every generation I think has been has been told to fear some other great enemy in the future, I think that climate change is a unique it's a unique phenomenon. It's a unique threat. It's it's so much more existential. It's so much more the direct result of our practices and the practices of our recent ancestors. And I think that that is why it's so difficult for many people to face and why it's so difficult for us to feel like we can do anything about it. Yeah. Really well said, especially when we're talking about life potentially not being possible in 2050 because our, our earth has warmed by four degrees, you know, like this is a prediction now that is, is possible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in terms of my thinking for having kids, it's funny because before the recording of the podcast, I was like, yeah, if climate change wasn't a thing, like I would, I think I'd want to have children. And Zavi was like, oh, a hundred percent. We were like, wait, yeah, me too. A hundred percent. But how much we've normalized, like how much I've completely normalized and internalized that like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to have kids because it's like not possible. Um, and I will say it's not even out of like, oh, I want to reduce my carbon footprint so Mm -hmm. I don't want to have children. It's really because I'm terrified that I'm going to be here to see like, you know, 2100 or 20 or, you know, how old will I be? Uh, Yeah, in 80 years. I probably won't be around in 80 years. But, you know, like I'm going to be here maybe in like 2070. And that thought terrifies me. And the thought that I would have a kid in like 10 years who will definitely be here after 2100, yeah. just yes. – I'm like I would not want to put that on someone. Mm-hmm. No shame at all to like the people who like have children obviously. But like that is my thought process in it is mm-hmm. like it's not a selfless good deed that I'm doing for the planet. It's just – um yeah, because like I have that thought. I'm just like what the heck is the earth going to – going to look like yeah yeah another thing that really contributes to my eco anxiety is that I feel like things are like I know that my material comfort is definitely going to be eroded in the next like decades (laughs) or like immediate years of my life like it's going to get warmer who knows like if the tap water is going to be contaminated everywhere for real tomorrow you know um and I I feel like all of those material privileges that I have right now are exponentially going to decrease as my other privileges also also lessen like I you know I think about how right now I'm lucky enough to be like healthy and to not need the medical system I think about the fact that I'm like young and don't need retirement and the fact that like you know I have this class and race privilege and I I feel like that's gonna hold less and less like Mm-hmm. ground um as we go forward and those things like really aren't going to mean anything and plus like just yeah I'm gonna get I'm gonna be getting like older and um poorer probably and all of these things and so uh that just like yeah when I think about that I get like pretty pretty nervous um and yeah I just feel like having a kid it's just gonna be worse for that kid so yeah definitely what you said reminds me of like 
of the really unfortunate truth that climate change is already being felt disproportionately by by marginalized people, by disabled people, by you know people of the majority world, um, and I think right now when we when we talk about eco anxiety, we're talking a lot about sort of the spiritual and psychological components of what for many people is like a physical, yeah, a physical tragedy, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like just think about all the climate refugees that yeah. <laughs> already. Yeah. Um, the huge waves that like Europe has experienced in like the, the refugee crisis these past few years and like how incredibly atrociously it's dealt with it mm-hmm. um, and it's treated those people. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. One of the things that I think it's just interesting to note is that all of these new terms that we've seen, like um, eco-anxiety, eco-grief, what are some other ones, environmental despair. And so the the one that I want to mention, um, specifically pre-traumatic stress disorder, pre-traumatic stress condition, is a term that was coined by Lisa Van Susteren, who is a forensic psychiatrist in DC, and she's also um, a big climate activist. And she coined this term pre-traumatic stress disorder to basically to basically describe what she and others around her were feeling, which is this incredible sense of fear about the future. Um, and basically experiencing all of the symptoms of PTSD because you're, you're watching the trauma happen in real time while feeling unable to do anything about it. Um, and that term really, really resonates for me. And I think also it describes, I think that it does a good job of describing like the conditions that we're living in, which is that we are all stressed about this. Like it is only a question of how much you choose to acknowledge that to yourself and what you choose to do with that information. Um, and in reading more about her, um, I came across, yeah, she, she had a really interesting interview where she was talking a lot about, um, the different psychological defenses that we've built up around, Um, around the climate change and how in many ways it's our own human psyches that are preventing us from making the very changes that we need to make. Um, And so, yeah, I guess I think it would be interesting to talk a little bit more since we're, since there's this interesting pairing of like eco anxiety and how there's this whole new psychology, there's this whole new human psychology that's being formed as a result of this present situation. Um, And so maybe if we can just talk a little bit more about like how that manifests psychologically. Yeah. So I guess this segues into our second part of the episode. What? Yeah. It it does. Yeah. 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 No, that's perfect. Um, God, you're a natural podcaster already. (laughs) Um, yeah. In part two, we wanted to talk about like, yeah, climate change and eco anxiety and like the societal impacts that it's having on our psyche. So I think that Savi, you, you found a few interesting numbers around that and yeah, let's just, let's just talk about, um, let's just talk yeah. about that for a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the things that I want to mention that I think contributed to my sense of eco-anxiety is I grew up in a fairly small town in the Midwest. Um, and while I grew up around a lot of people who acknowledge the reality of climate change, I was also like, I was also around a lot of other people who denied it in all kinds of 
fascinating ways. Um, and I think that I've always just been curious about what it is that what it is that encourages certain people to embrace the truth and what encourages other people to run from it. So one of the things that Van Susteren talks about is first, you know, people, people in power are going to be the least likely to do anything about this because all of their power is predicated on this system that is creating the situation we're living in. Um, you know, our political system is not, I don't think any any of our political systems are set up to deal with long-term challenges like this. It's very much just people running on like short-term election cycles and basically hoping for their own individual gain. And so we're seeing this like on a massive scale right up to, you know, Trump and all of the other major world leaders who are either, you know, denying it denying the effects of climate change or or essentially greenwashing their policies and making it seem as though they're doing so much more about climate change than they are. Um, and so, and so I think that that makes sense. I think it makes sense that those people would feel way too invested to, to actually embrace the truth of what's happening. But what's other, what's interesting also is people who are um, just regular people who have a hard time acknowledging the truth um, and one of the things that she mentioned was that she found that it's often men that who either directly or from afar, they, they hate to acknowledge that climate change is a problem. And she says it's often an issue of feeling emasculated, that these are typically the men who might deep down when you, feel, when you flip that hood up, have some uncertainties about their masculinity. I'm just going to come right out and say this. And the idea that Mother Nature or some damn woman is going to push me around or that I'm some kind of a girly man with fears about the weather, it's just not going to happen. Yes. Like when you read that quote to me, I was just like, oh, my God. Yeah. I feel like when I read that, too, it was like a light bulb going off in my head because it also – it. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's it's such a gendered way of conceptualizing the world. It explains so much about why we're in the present situation we're in. And it also made me think a lot about how my own relationship to the earth and to to nature is how much of that is fed by my own socialization as a woman, you know. Um, And while, while, of course, I think of course, I'm grateful that like I was raised to identify with the plants and the earth and like everything I came from. What I think is really the sickness is that is that within toxic masculinity, men are somehow told that they're not a part of nature, that it's actually man versus nature. Yes. Um, and that we're we're living the results of that mm-hmm. way of thinking right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the the idea of like capitalism and, and growth is so premised on like, it, yeah, it's so phallic yeah. and it's so like endocentric and it's so much about like hurting, pillaging nature. There's this like penetrative competitive idea of mm-hmm. just like killing nature. I mean, that quote about like, you know, men not wanting to, the idea that some like damn woman is going to boss them around is inconceivable to them. I feel like some men are just like, no, my erection is going to be stronger than this climate change. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, the idea of it being mother earth and even just the, even just the fact that I think a lot of men 
a lot of men hesitate to even to even embrace basic terms like environmentalism mm-hmm. um, when we understand that people are kind of dealing with their reality from this really complex web of um, of psych just like this psyche that I think a lot of people haven't even really fully explored in themselves, especially a lot of men who are very, you know, (laughs) like very masculine men or people who are men who really identify um, with that way of living. And I think that that will be like one of the greatest challenges that actually maybe, maybe the challenge in fighting climate change has a lot to do with unlearning like these mental processes that have created this sense of this artificial sense of separation from the world. Yes. Yeah. And this whole thing is making me think a lot about how as a woman, I feared being too alarmist about climate change, like to myself and with the men around me, just because I've been indoctrinated with the stereotype of hysteria of like the hysterical woman my whole life. Um, who fear, you know, is paranoid and fears about things that she shouldn't fear about. And yeah, this is just so emblematic of one of the worst fights I've ever had with my father, which happened last year. <laughs> we were, no, maybe it was like a couple of years ago. Um, but it was right around the time that Trump and Putin were really coming. Oh no, maybe it was Trump and North Korea were threatening each other with um, the possibility of dropping a nuclear bomb. Uh, And I was at the restaurant with my father and I was like, you know, this is really terrifying. This is what we've come to. And he's like, because he's still kind of under the illusion that some kind of brilliant startup idea is going to save us from this entire mess of climate change. (laughs) And that like humans always find a way to make it work. And this, this, whatever, nuclear war isn't actually going to happen. He's very revisionist about how he sees human history and Mm -hmm. like human progress. And anyway, we ended up getting in a in a really horrible fight where um where I was not understand where he ended up like telling me that I was like hysterical and scared for no reason and, and that as my father he also needed to like reassure me and tell me that everything was going to be fine and that all of these fear based predictions were just a way to keep to keep me from contributing to reality today and like all of these uh, just this terrible argument blew up that made me feel like I needed to be less hysterical about mm-hmm. this whole climate change thing and the the whole threat that our political system is posing to the planet and I, I think that she's kind of like this is not this like stupid feminine nature of ours is not going to actually impede on my power as a free agent in mm-hmm. this world mm-hmm. you know so yeah. yeah, made me think about all of that. No, I, I mean, I think that's so real. Do you do you feel like you have changed or kind of repackaged your message or how you talk with people about maybe climate change, but also sh- social I- issues more generally mm-hmm. um, as a result of being a woman and being perceived as a woman? Mm, that's a good question. I feel like I really did at first. Um, for example when I first became vegan, I, to be taken more seriously, I would always talk about the environmental aspects first and like then the health. And then I relegated to the last minute, especially when talking to men that it was my, my empathy for animals and the Mm. suffering they go through was the primary reason that I was vegan. Like I never really packaged it that way. Um, because it just made me seem like 
an overly sensitive, maybe like idealistic. Right. That's not a good reason to go vegan. No, no. It's like, <laughs> why would you do anything that's not primarily motivated by self-interest? You yeah, know? Exactly. And I mean, there's a, we could just go down a whole other conversation about how masculinity is linked to meat eating and you know, all of that. Um, yeah. I mean, is it is it too far to say that masculinity is somehow linked to the idea of like having total domination over over the earth and its animals? Absolutely. You know? I think that's not a stretch at all. I think that's like exactly <laughs> what toxic masculinity is. Yeah. And I have changed that, mm-hmm. I think, um, because at first I wasn't even critical of the fact that I wasn't putting the animals at the forefront. You know, I was like, oh, this is the most effective way to sell the message, right? Mm-hmm. Is to be purely rational and not emotional about it. And I actually think that's really not the most effective way. Like sometimes when I talk about veganism and I really get into the nitty gritty of like what happens to mother cows when you know their baby is ripped away from them and they have to like endlessly produce milk until they die, which is like five years later because of this, the exploitation that their bodies go through, like sometimes I start crying, you know, if I let myself go there and I've actually found that that is way more effective than I was <laughs> scared of, you know? It probably like stirs up some kind of really deep well of compassion and empathy that we have in each of us and that every yeah. person has, you know? Yeah. Cause everyone can relate to that. Yeah. Hopefully, you know? <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I and I think, again, a lot of masculine posturing has to do with being afraid to access those feelings. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in doing a little bit of research about this link between gender and climate denialism or just kind of our psyches and how we react to climate change, um, that I found a number of interesting studies, including – a series of studies in which researchers found evidence that people perceive consumers who behave in eco-friendly ways as being more feminine and and that those consumers also perceive themselves as more feminine. Um, also, generally, just generally, women are much more likely than men to be concerned about climate change, um, whereas men are – and. Yeah, another interesting related statistic to this is that men may even go so far as to avoid green behaviors in order to protect their sense of masculinity. Um, I think that just I can think of so many rich examples like that off the top of my head. Oh, I, yeah. I, and I think you were even mentioning there there are so many things in in the store that have to be aggressively marketed as masculine in order for men to not feel um yeah, in order for men to buy it. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's making me think about how veganism is marketed to men. Like, you know, there's entire sections dedicated to like, you know, eat vegetables like a man. And these are the dishes that you can still grill as a dude, but like make seitan sausages or totally. things like that. And a lot of the vegan message that is geared towards men is always about, you know, how your erection will last longer, <laughs> yeah. how you can still be a bodybuilder, right. how vegan women are really hot. So really, maybe it's like a smart masculine thing to do to go yeah. vegan because then you'll be able to get them, <laughs> exactly. you know? Um, and I'm just like, Y'all are so fragile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it and it goes and I think again it speaks to how a lot of things a lot of things by default are coded as feminine when they're just kind of basic things about <laughs> life, you know? Um yeah, I'm I'm just thinking a lot about 
I think even growing up as a woman, it was easier even as expected that I would care about the world. And it's not surprising in any way that I'm interested in social justice, whereas, you know, a man who is interested in those th- same things, it, 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 first of all, like means something about him. Oh, and yeah. he, he either, it either detracts from his masculinity or it somehow confers extra power on him because he's, he, you know, Wonder. he's, he's become an enlightened male you know he's gone above and beyond whereas women it's just assumed for us that we will be compassionate we will be empathetic we will worry when things around us are falling apart Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah and and i'd go so far even as to say not only will it uh, sort of reaffirm their masculinity or their enlightenment in some way but then we will make them the heroes of our movement always like Mm -hmm. again talking about veganism or even climate change all of the the poster children of that movement are always are always these white dudes when like the yeah. majority of those movement is actually if you look at the um like who's in those movement it's a majority of women and that just really says something about patriarchy yeah yeah i think that for many i think all of us grew up with we all grew up watching Hollywood movies and getting stories about like that single lone hero. And that of course feeds into like the very problem of individualism that we meant that we talked about earlier. Um, and so maybe one way of dreaming our way out of climate change or not dreaming, I mean, we're not going to get out of climate change, but dreaming of ways to accept, adjust to, and actively like shape the reality that we're living in. I think, I think it requires us just discarding those narratives or replacing them with something better. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that in all of us, there's this tendency to center, to center men or to center that idea of like the single hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And this reminds me of um, something that I read in a book. It's it's a French book. The title translates to another end of the world is possible. There's this whole chapter that talks about the fact that climate scientists have been um, internally pressured within their field and also like by people in society um, to be very objective and cold when they communicate the catastrophic the, the catastrophic findings and like predictions about climate change and how that really hasn't been effective and how the fact that they can't communicate their message emotionally because then it might be labeled as too subjective, too alarmist, not objective enough has had, I think, extremely detrimental effects, mm-hmm. um, both because it doesn't really communicate the real sense of like urgency and grief that we should be feeling when we receive this these numbers, mm-hmm. and also because the people who read the IFCC report or the summaries and who feel the grief, like they don't feel really validated by like if the message is being communicated in this really like cold distant way um that's also isolating because you're like wait i'm not getting the empathy or the validation that this of how, scary of how freaking scary yeah. this is you know so i i am happy that i feel like that's kind of the moving on i i can just think of climate scientists that are french right now in my head that are talking a bit more about these numbers like emotionally and the grief yeah. that they're feeling at it because apparently there's a wide phenomenon of climate scientists being like super depressed about these numbers and yeah. i can't even imagine if my career was studying these horrible predictions all day long you know yeah. how much worse my eco anxiety would be 
<laughs> so I just yeah. um, feel for them and wished we talked about that because I think that it would be way more effective for all of us. Absolutely. Well, that that also that reminds me of. I think another reason why climate scientists have held themselves back in the past is there there's been this there's been this really rigid way of conceptualizing science itself and that that also I think relates to masculinity in a way like this idea that in order for science to really be accurate it can't be it can't have emotion in it you know it has to be it has to be purely logical purely rational um and that actually is not really reflective of like the complexity of the world that we live in um yeah I hope that is changing yeah and just like pure rationality or objectivity like doesn't exist <laughs> right you know? yeah and like the, the more science we learn like the more we find out how true that is and how that in and of itself is like a universal law yeah anyways um another thing that I want to mention that this reminds me of is I really think that for example even before climate change I think that the overly objective way that we've talked about science has been a problem for the world. You know, it's, it's a problem when it's a problem when doctors give a diagnosis where it's just like you have this thing and there's no emotion or, you know, friendliness conveyed in it like that in of itself is that is another kind of trauma. Um, and so I guess what I wanted to say about this is that I think climate change is really a challenge to every aspect of our society and it really sh- it shines a light on all of these different psychological processes that have led us to where we are today mm-hmm. um and in that way it's also a great challenge to to radically rethink for example how we talk about science to the public it's a it's an opportunity to rethink every way that we exist with each other. Mm-hmm. And this has been an, a really widespread problem that interestingly is being acknowledged by really prominent organizations. So the American Psychological Association released um, a review of existing scientific literature about eco-anxiety and has found that um, gradual long-term changes in climate can basically surfaces in a number of different emotions and psychological problems. And the APA also says to compound the issue, the psychological responses to climate change, such as conflict avoidance, fatalism, fear, helplessness, and resignation are growing. These responses are keeping us and our nation from po- from properly addressing the core causes of and solutions to our changing climate and from building and supporting psychological resiliency. One of the things I thought about immediately when I read this is how is it that the American how is it that the American Psychological Association has released this report about eco-anxiety and it fully acknowledges the the material effects that this is having on people. Um, they even acknowledge they they write more often than not people with low incomes, people of color and indigenous people will feel these impacts first and in many cases already are. And while I think it's heartening in some ways to see to see organizations like this be vocal and be honest about what's happening, there's also something really jarring about living in a world where the APA will come out with this report and yet our our government and our world leaders still deny the effects or try to or try to make it seem like so much less of a problem and so much less of a global crisis than it is. Yes. A hundred percent. It's reminding me of of a chapter in that book that I was mentioning earlier that 
um, discusses the fact that eco-anxiety, you know, and depression and even suicide are around that is going to be growing exponentially in, in the coming years and how we really need capacitated professionals to accompany this society in distress, not as a way to you know, say like, oh, we're going to make everyone sort of feel better. But to really, um, this is going to be such a serious issue that really this, this should be an issue that is like subsidized by the government, basically. Um, kind of like you're saying, like the APA is, is putting out reports saying that this is like a a huge life threat to the humans of this planet. And yet, we're still so focused on therapy that doesn't even address patriarchy and yeah. racism and climate change and all of these issues that are driving so many of the conditions that therapy or like psychology does want to address. Right. And so I hope that, yeah, I hope that in the coming years we see more of that. I mean, just the other day, actually, one of my one of one of our friends um, who you know has a lot of eco anxiety and um, who's going who's now going to therapy, uh, she was kind of worried about coming out to her therapist to discuss that this was a huge source of of anxiety and it was driving a lot of her depression and a lot of her um, insomnia and things like that. And this is like a prog- you know a seemingly like progressive therapist who you know she's not like a climate denialist Mm -hmm. denialist Mm -hmm. yeah she you know came out and talked about this and the therapist kind of like shamed her about it she was like you know it there's no use worrying about that and we don't really know what's going to happen and so like until it happens why be so scared about it and was just her own complex that is so freaking unsupportive about it and you know i was just thinking about my friend who already like how we're all gaslit already by like what we're seeing in society. Uh, just very little validation for this daily ego grief that we're all feeling. But mm-hmm. to think that you know this person is getting help going to a therapist who is now prescribing medication for the depression and, and talks about this, like the fact that we still have just so little therapy that addresses these causes of of grief is super concerning. Mm-hmm. And I went through a period like a month ago where I was like, I, I really want to become a therapist and learn to accompany people as they go through their ego grief. I mean, it'd be great if I could learn to accompany myself. But uh, I just feel like that is a, you guys listening, if anyone has an interest in uh, becoming a therapist for ego grief. Um, well, I know that some, I know that there are definitely like some uh, therapists and organization working on that. Um Probably a lot in the field of collapsology, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, which that book that I was talking about earlier identifies as a book in collapsology. Uh, but yeah, anyway, I feel like that's very necessary. Totally. Do we want to talk about some of those alternative narratives that... Yeah, I feel like we've been such a bummer this entire yeah. time. Maybe we should talk about some things that we can actually do about all of this. Yes. Totally. <laughs> so one quote that I thought was interesting, um, and Zavi, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, is um, a quote in, in this book that I keep referring to from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, I will say it with an American accent, but he is... No, how do you say it in the French accent? <laughs> Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. <laughs> uh, we did visit outside his home the other day. It was amazing. Um, when we were walking around Paris. 
fun fact. Um, <laughs> so he said, no one can feel... Oh, and this is the author of The Little Prince, that mm -hmm. book. Le Petit Prince. And he said, no one can feel at once responsible and despairing. Mm -hmm. So I was just thinking about that. Yeah. And um, it's true that whenever I start to feel really despairing, I think it's irresponsible. Mm -hmm. Just because it feels complacent in a way. But mm -hmm. then it's like that guilt we were talking about, about being depressed and being realistic about the situation. But it does yeah. feel sort of irresponsible, especially as someone with so many privileges. Um, I feel like I'm not allowed to just despair mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. give up. And yeah, I, I don't know. How do you feel about this quote? No one can feel at once responsible and despairing. Um, yeah, I really, I really liked it. I thought that it, it's a great quote for thinking about for thinking about solutions and thinking about kind of dreaming up a new future for us. Um, I think at least for me, a big, a, a big antidote to my own eco anxiety has been to actively reframe the stories that I tell myself. Um, and that requires a lot of like really intense, like psychological work, you know, just moment by moment. And I've realized, I've realized in doing a lot of work around this that I've spent a lot of my life feeling despair about the world that I'm in, about the level, about the scale of injustices that are being perpetrated every day. Um, but I never really did that much about any of those things when I was really, really despairing. Mm. It was only when I felt motivated and capable of changing something, even in a really small way, that one, I was able to do things about it. I was able to actually get formally involved in different form in different kinds of activism. Um, but two, taking action helped me feel better. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it became it becomes a feedback cycle and one that I want to expand yeah. on and kind of, yeah, just like grow into one that one that allows me to kind of take all of these emotions and process them as a as a form of fuel. And I think that that's what this quote is getting to is that we can't feel responsible. We can't feel able to do something about it when we're despairing because despairing means that we're just sitting with this heavy weight of emotion and feeling totally unable, hopeless, you know, mm -hmm. and feeling unable to do anything about it. And I think that it, I think that we can only stop despairing by taking responsibility, mm -hmm. you know, and taking responsibility may look like grieving. It might look mm -hmm. like it might look like going to therapy, you know, it might not look like, it might not look like signing up for moveon.org or whatever, mm -hmm. um, at least in the immediate, at least in the immediate beginning. Yeah. There's an interesting anecdote in the book that I was mentioning about, uh, so the author makes a parallel between um, how to announce to people the reality and the gravity of climate change and this diagnostic that like, diagno diagnosis, mm -hmm. sorry. <laughs> this uh, diagnosis that the world is catching on fire and things are looking real bad. Um, with the research that has come the, the research that has been done around how doctors can announce a fatal diagnosis in a way that generates hope and positivity more than the sense of doom that will, I was going to say kill the patient on the spot. Mm. <laughs> I feel like that was not the most empathetic way to phrase that. <laughs> so anyway, just, just thinking about 
you know, how we talk about climate change and how we talk about illness as these like fatal realities. Mm -hmm. Um, just like that parallel has interested that I, I found that idea interesting. And he talks about this one patient who had, um, who has Huntington's disease, which is a genetic disorder, I believe that is degenerative. And basically there's no cure for, for it. And so it's, in a sense, even though it can take like 25 years to play out is like a fatal diagnosis. And um, a association was founded by a person who got by a woman who got diagnosed with Huntington's disease and felt at a complete loss of how to deal with it. Um, the association she founded is called Ding Ding Dong. And it basically it, it is meant to help other patients who have this diagnosis deal with it in the best way possible. And she talks about three big lessons that she's learned. The first is to get people to stop, quote unquote, fighting against the illness because it isn't particularly constructive and you're fighting an uphill battle and experience which suggest instead that they need to, that, that it's best to learn how to, quote unquote, dance with the illness, dance with death or dance with our shadows. And that this requires also a posture of humility about the diagnosis and the the second the second lesson is that we can't announce that everything is fucked uh, especially without being specific about what is fucked exactly and and to instead instead of having this deterministic approach of like this is going to kill me in 15 years or this is going to kill my loved one in 15 years adopt a position more of pragmatism about um about following the developments of the illness and learning from that experience. And this point in particular really made me think about Adrienne Marie Brown, the, the writer of Emergent Strategy, um, who Maxie and I have talked about at great lengths on this podcast. By the way, side note, but Zavi got me, Zavi is the initial person who got me that book and just like altered the course of my life. So I thank you very much. And it's appropriate that you're here. Yay. Thanks, Adrian Marie Brown. Everyone yeah. Else. Yeah. yeah. That's just, I feel like that's an amazing, just like, like spiritual oh, gift. Gift. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a holy text. Whew, lost my train of thought. Oh, right. <laughs> she talks about in the book um, that she adopts a position of wonder when she looks at the world and tries to um, keep that excitement or at least that, that that posturing alive throughout all the news that she hears and all the experiences that she has to try to be curious about them and think about them in like a generative way that that is at the root of the emergence of new solutions and new possibilities mm. instead of being very fatalistic or deterministic about them. Also, she talks at great length in Emergent Strategies about this posture of humility um, and of wonder that she tries to adopt in all areas of her life, mm -hmm. including the apocalypse, including climate change, um, including all methods of like organizing and, and growth and her mistakes and her successes and things like that. So anyway, this this um, second lesson, which advocates against announcing that everything is fucked and, and focusing on that, um, really reminded me of what Adrienne Murray Brown says. And then the third is that after the announcement of the diagnostic, sorry, diagnosis, did it again. <laughs> it is important to regain self-confidence through creation, exploration, and the sharing of experiences rather than solitary despair. Mm. Um, and, and really try to connect with a community of, of people who are validating your feelings of grief and joy and, you know, who are, who are there to 
learn and wonder with you. Mm-hmm. So I thought this was a pretty cool starting point for everything else that we're going to talk about. Yeah. No, I really love that. Thanks to the author of this book. <laughs> <laughs> and one thing that we've been talking about all day is this idea of like imagining a imagining a different future. I've been really interested in this idea that we're trapped in someone else's imagination against this. Again, this was Adrienne Murray Brown talks a lot about this, but how everything that we're living right now, like this sci-fi-ish nightmarish reality at some point did not exist and was being imagined by people. Like this was at one point, like what we're living now was complete imagination. And I think about this all the time when I see like these new absurd technologies coming out or these just new ways of exploiting animals or this nightmarish reality of Silicon Valley billionaires trying to download their consciousnesses into robots to live forever. Mm -hmm. Things that like- like they're bunkers, right? Freaking (laughs) bunkers to survive the end of the world. You know, I'm like, this could only be true in a sci-fi film. Yet- Apparently, it's true right now, and it's just farcical, mm-hmm. like the the reality that that we're living in. And n- now more than ever, I'm just very conscious of what we dream and what we imagine is very powerful, and our lack of uh, our, our lack of like being able to imagine other solutions is a remnant of like capitalism that has colonized that imagination. Yeah, that. That's a really great point. And it also makes me think about about how um, imagination comes out of our minds, our stories, what we tell ourselves, and the lessons from the from the organization Ding Ding Dong, and I think also from Adrian Marie Brown and others, is that we have to actively reframe the narratives that we're telling ourselves already about the present moment. And from there, we're able to dream new things, dream new futures into being. Um, And so I think about that specifically with the three lessons um, from this person. If we, if we have, if we have this basic idea that everything is fucked, then what are we going to do? We're going to deny, repress, we're we're going to do a lot of what we're seeing right now. Panic. Yeah, totally. Um, But what happens, what happens in a world where you create space for to to just be like this is the world we have right now and we are the present ones alive and able to do something about it and really yeah i think that just in that act of of moving away from tragedy and decline and terror and fear and all of the things that i think all of those same emotions that have been used to keep us complacent for way too long we should be the ones who are bold enough to say everything is fucked and we're going to do something about it. You know, yes. everything is fucked and we're, and we're still alive. Mm-hmm. You know, that's amazing to me. I think that it's, and, and another thing, yet another thing that this makes me think of is if we approach, if we approach this with wonder, like we should not be surprised that this is happening. You know, this is this is the inevitable consequence of things that have been in motion for a long time. You know, since the Industrial Revolution, really, people even since the Industrial Revolution, people have been warning about running out of resources, about the effects that that these practices will have on the climate. Um, so this is not this is not like a shocking turn of events for us you know Mm -hmm. this is an opportunity for us to fully understand the story of like how humans have been treating the earth and how 
we're going to make this decision. Are we going to evolve and survive and thrive? Or are we going to live in the ruins of this bad story that we've created for ourselves? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I find myself oscillating between both of those things (laughs) all of the time, like multiple times a day. I'm like, we're fucked. Wait, no, this like new great thing that's happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like I'm terrified or as Saint Saint-Exupéry said, I mean, I'm in despair and I'm, what was the word that he used? Hopeful? No, it wasn't that. Responsible? Oh yeah. No, I don't know if I'm in despair and responsible. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I <laughs> but, think like, it's I'm terrified and I'm hopeful. Yeah. Or, or like you, like you, you are terrified and you're also feeling you're also feeling empowered to do something about yeah. it in this time that you have on this earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It it also reminds me of, um, I think that it was Afko who said this in Afroisms, but she talks about how like, you know, black people are trapped in a white supremacist imagination, mm-hmm. just like non-human animals are trapped in a speciesist imagination where they their their inferiority is fictional mm-hmm. um and that we need to like reimagine that entire yeah. narrative and question every aspect of what we fictionally think of as superior and inferior mm. because none of this none of it is actually rooted in reality even though that fictional narrative has created a reality in which it's true right yes yes yeah, that's so real. Yeah, so how do we proceed? Like how where 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 Don't ask me that. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, where does the work go from here in terms I mean, I think that you and I have talked a lot about um how even even just the everyday experience of eco-anxiety is a constant invitation to to investigate those feelings, to investigate what's happening. Um and like we've also talked about in so many ways, despite feeling this incredible weight and this incredible sadness about the things that are happening, I also feel um, really grateful and really like, yeah, just super grateful that I am in a place right now where I've been able to learn about these things, where I've been able to kind of to contextualize the pain that I see around me and to um, into a narrative that makes sense and into a narrative that allows me to have some sense of agency and allows me to create some change um, mm-hmm. where I'm at right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also think I am now more comfortable with the idea of embracing a, like a multiple types of activism and of ways of acting on these things. Whereas before I wanted to find the one thing that I was mm-hmm. going to dedicate my whole life to, and that was going to have the most impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, I'm a, like, I want to, I want to str- strive towards like zero waste or using less crap, like in my daily life, Yeah. even though I know, okay, on some level, like individualist actions are not going to have an, a systemic impact, you know, but I want to do those things. And I, those, those things make me feel empowered and good to do. And I'm going to keep on doing them mm-hmm. and keep on like progressing on how I do them. But also like I'm involved in just I feel like my activism has gotten more diverse. I, I saw this like great post that was about cheering, you know, instead of like pointing out how every how what people are doing is falling short, like how using how not using straws, if you're also like eating meat and eating fish is not is, you know, totally counterproductive. Like, yeah, okay, it, it like it would be much better to not eat fish. Uh, <laughs> but am I 
going to like right away point that out when the person is not eating, not using straws, or maybe try to recognize that not using straws stems from a an important impetus to change the world. And how can I say yes and to that? And mm. maybe like, you know, bring yeah. bring something else to the conversation. And how can I keep doing that in my own life? Like instead of yeah. hyper-focusing on all the contradictions that my actions have under capitalism, mm-hmm. just being like, okay, yes, and totally. I'm going to keep on doing this. And then I'm just going to keep like learning and growing and yeah. want, you know, having a posture of wandering about all the other things that I can do. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and actually, I think that that's a great example of how, of once again, reformatting ourselves, reframing that narrative, because I think that a lot of activism and a lot of progress has been hampered by infighting and by, um, by, you know, instead of, instead of, putting forward more solutions, criticizing the ones that have been offered. Mm -hmm. Um, And like we were saying, that's that's such a great example of how capitalism colonizes our minds and how even, even when we want to do good, we have to consciously, we have to consciously interrogate ourselves throughout that. Um, I'm thinking of how, this is totally true for me too, that I used to think a lot about, well, what is the best thing that I can do? What is the, what is the form of activism that will have the most impact? Um, and that's a very, very capitalist way of conceptualizing your activism. You know, it's, it's very much fitting within these very, within these super narrow ideas of what success looks like or what impact looks like, Mm -hmm. what, what you actually gain from these things. I don't think that we gain very much from, from criticizing other people's choices. And I think we gain so much from affirming every little choice that someone does make along the way, for example, and, and affirming, affirming always opens the, opens up more space, you know, I feel like affirming always opens up the opportunity for more solutions. And like, with the with the level with the scale of climate change, it's also a challenge to have a million solutions, you know, it's not going to be one solution, it's going to be Mm -hmm. so many, it's going to be the innovation of, of billions of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, that's so scary. And also such an amazing challenge, you know? (laughs) Yeah. That reminds me of what Adrienne Murray Brown says about like, if you're not there to also help make it better, then don't, don't criticize it. Mm. Or like, if you're going to criticize something, then have an intention behind it, which is that you're going to make it better. Right. And she similarly says like, if something's already broken, don't like break it more basically. (laughs) And that, I mean, I had to call myself out when I read that. I'm just like super quick to point out the criticism about like certain movements and, I feel very compelled to stop doing that. I know we've also discussed this on the show of like, okay, um, if you see a shortcoming of something, like what are five other solutions or what are a way mm. to make it better instead of just like discarding the like baby with the bathwater. And and this has also changed how I can, how I like conceptually think of activism as like, you know, we need to win. We need to defeat the opposing party. Because the, I feel like the more that I'm getting older, the more I realize there's no one opposing part. Like, yes, there's a I, – I just used to see things in a very binary way of, like, there's a ruling class. We need to topple that ruling class. But there's, mm-hmm. like, a million ruling classes and there's a million oppressed groups and there's a million ways, like, those situations play out. Yeah. And um, – I think like the interconnecting like ecosystems that like Adrienne Marie Brown talks about. She talks about the world as this constellation of different 
processes that are going on all the time and how we need to like collectively evolve or collectively like fight for, you know, what is the vision that we're fighting for? I just think way more about elevating uh, collective consciousness um, and how also my own process is a part of that. And instead of, I guess, I mean, obviously I know that there's, yeah, it's like hard to talk about this because then I'm, I feel like I'm giving oppressors and privileged people like a pass. Um, Mm -hmm. So I don't say this to say that the people in the ruling class um, and with privileges don't need to be held profoundly accountable and aren't hugely responsible in this change and more so than the people who don't have material resources. But I guess I just, I think about it more as like a complex web of interactions and, Mm -hmm. and consciousness raising that needs to be had rather than, because also like we're all fucked by climate change, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like ultimately, yeah. Okay. Probably like people with privileges might survive 10 more years, you know, but this is just such an example of like a collective struggle that Mm -hmm. if we don't have everyone, we're going to have no one. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that I just want to reiterate that talking with you about this stuff during this podcast and also just before and in general, that does a lot for me. Um, Being able to talk about these things with other people is a really healing process for me. Um, And so I think that that's important to note. I think that a lot of us are scared to talk about climate change, especially with people that we haven't discussed those things with before. Um, For all the reasons we mentioned, you know, it's so profoundly painful on so many psychological levels. Um, But it's so it's so worth it to try to have these conversations. And yeah, like I'm like, we're saying, I think that in having these conversations, we create the space for imagining new and better things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, I, I guess I just really want to end on that and to to make it clear that we're not just we're we're upset and we're sad and angry and grieving and we're all of those things and we're also excited and growing and learning and yeah. I don't want to, and not trying to put like too optimistic of a spin on it, but it's, it, it, it shouldn't be seen as this horrific tragedy that's like ready to fall down on all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People who have been the victims of the worst type of oppression were similarly futuristically oriented. Um, Adrian Murray Brown talks about people who were slaves and serve and and were jumping off the slave ships or rebelled in all these waves were like Afrofuturists, were people who like dreamed of another future, and how that's been a incredibly important like life force. Um, and I was yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think that we have. I think all of us have a lot of healing to do around these really violent histories that have birthed the present reality. Um, and it's, yeah, I'm continually inspired by all the amazing people out there in the world who are doing such incredible work to create, to live, to love, to imagine, to imagine something better for all of us. Yeah. Um, and it's so important to recognize that it is that dreaming of the future that motivated their action that set them free it is not because so often it's reframed as this narrative of like oh the oppressors just benevolently ended slavery or benevolently like gave these rights to the oppressed people but like no they would have never fucking 
yeah. gotten free if it was up to the oppressors. Yes. And and on that note, no one is going to come save us from climate change. No, There's no government. There's no policy that's just going to be passed or voted on. You know, like we are the ones who need to save ourselves. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think – and that again, it's terrifying, but it's exhilarating. It's an amazing call to action. Yes. Um, And so on that note, I would like to end by sharing some beautiful words from Adrienne Marie Brown's website. Um, She, she, I don't know if she still actively posts on this blog, but she has an amazing um, blog at adriannemariebrown.net, which I really encourage anyone to scroll through when they're feeling lonely and (laughs) like they don't know what to do with themselves. So, um, Adrienne Marie Brown writes, I believe we are living on the precipice of the next phase of our species. And I'm with such good people, people who cry hard and laugh harder and do one to move through the other, rolling across the full emotional span in epic waves. We feel what's gaping and yawning underneath both of those releases, that scale of love grief that can't be captured in any words I know. We let it be in our eyes at our core. The more I learn and remember how to feel, the more in love I fall with the particular aliveness that only sparks between us. That met longing felt when the interior world unfolding in me comes to a border and longs to be porous, expansive, vast, one, multitudes. This opening, these moments, this work, this makes a viable future possible. Thank you. (laughs) all right everyone thank you for listening to this episode yeah thank thank you you so much zavi for joining me on it thank you for having me it was super fun um and inspiring to talk about all of this with you make sure to check out zavi's work in the description box below sorry that is my youtube self it is not (laughs) description box what is it called (laughs) um in the the show notes notes. there you go in the show notes (laughs) and um i'll also link videos that i did on my channel with zavi if you're okay with that yeah um we can link a few um if you want to see a beautiful face and yeah thanks so much everyone for listening and yeah thank you and yeah keep loving yep (laughs) see you soon (laughs) 